Well, you have your Bible if you want your Bible. You see, I'm, I just have it all on my notepad. Right? I'm going to get this out of the way. I'm going to trip on this. Do I need to hit the record button or are we going at it? Okay. All right. I'm not that tall. There we go. Okay, let's go ahead and start off this evening with the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 14. We're going to read on through verse 21. So I'll give you just a second here. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 14. All right. It says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry loud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and, his, and, in, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now I've titled my lesson for this week, Behold the Messiah. And I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're talking to someone and they find out that you're a Christian. And they say, well, I have a question for you. Who is the Messiah? What can you tell me about him? How would you respond to that? If someone said, who is the Messiah? I, I hear Christians talking about the Messiah. Who is he? What can you tell me about him? How do you answer that? Yes. Is Jesus Christ? Okay. What else can you, can you tell me about him? Imagine I've, I have zero exposure. And I have, I'm like, okay, he's, he's Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. He saved us from our sins so that we don't have to go to hell and that we can go to heaven if we were to believe. Okay. He, he's a savior. A savior from the very present... Uh, Difficult we find ourselves in of being a sinner. Yes. Yeah. Right. Thanks. Yeah. Um, he's, he was both God and man. He's God's son. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, and then he died, sacrificial death, and then he rose again from the grave. And through that, he transfers his holiness onto us so that we can be right with God. Okay. And we should be. Okay. Yeah. He, he is both God and man. 100% both. Yeah, these are all these are all good good responses. I, I want you to know that tonight we get a special treat, uh, and it's not that I'm teaching. That is not the treat. Um, that's kind of an anti-treat. Instead, the treat is that we get to see how God the Father personally describes the Son and answers the question of who He says the Messiah is. But that's down in verse 18, and we're starting in verse 14. I just I want you to keep it in mind. That as we go through the first couple of verses here, this is leading up to what God says, uh, or what God says the answer is to who is the Messiah. And just so you have a broad overview of where I'm going to be going tonight, here's my very, very general outline. Uh, we're going to be talking about the anger of the Pharisees, the response of the Messiah, and then finally, the declaration of the Father. So I want us to read verse 14 again as we, we go kind of more in depth through this passage. Uh, it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. What's going on here? Uh, it's a bit of a jarring opening, isn't it? 
we, we know that something has clearly just happened, and it's something that the Pharisees are angry about, and specifically they're angry, angry at someone about. So, so what's going on here? Uh, and the reason it's, it's kind of jarring is, you know, or I should say the reason that we've put verse 14 with my lesson now, instead of Alejandro's lesson the last time, uh, is because we are seeing the full rejection of Christ by the Pharisees. And it's going to fit in more with uh, how God reveals the Messiah in just a minute here. So remember that up to now in chapter 12, we've seen Jesus interact with the Pharisees in two separate occasions concerning the Sabbath. Uh, the first being in verses 1 to 8, and that's when the disciples are going through the grain field, and they pick the heads of the grains, and they rub them together because they're hungry, and they need something to eat. Uh, and the second time was when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. And in both of these interactions, Christ's response left them unable to argue back with him. He did it first by showing that they had a complete lack of understanding in the scripture itself. And then he showed them that they don't believe the things that they claim to believe based on their own actions. And as a result of these two interactions, the Pharisees went out and they conspired how to destroy Jesus. Uh, in fact, uh, we're specifically told in Mark 3, 6, that the Pharisees immediately left and conspired with the Herodians on how uh, they might kill Jesus. Now, this is remarkable, and I'm pretty sure I've fallen behind on my slides here. Yeah. Uh, this is remarkable because the Herodians were basically the exact opposite of the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees were a religious political group, that they had an extreme teaching that you need to keep all of their man-made traditions, and they believed that Israel needed to stand alone. It needed to be its own unique nation. Meanwhile, uh, the Herodians were a political religious group. They only loosely observed a very few of the Jewish traditions, and they believed that the best thing for the Jewish people was actually to come close to Herod's family. And uh, uh, that, that's how the Jewish nation becomes strong, for the household of Herod. So these two groups, they absolutely hated and deplored one another. And yet, despite this long-standing hatred, uh, they were able to come together and that they both equally hated Christ. It was the unifying uh, thing that brought them together. And they, they came together and they said, how can we kill Jesus? How can we utterly dispose of every last remnant of the, what he's taught? And the intensity of their hatred, as we, we see it unfold throughout the book of Matthew, it makes me think of Ezekiel 15, uh, where God, God pronounces judgment against Israel. He says in verse 7 that he will set his face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and they will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. The Pharisees, the Herodians, and while well, not mentioned here, yes, the Sadducees as well, all had set their faces against Jesus. And they did it despite having just witnessed him heal someone. It was an undeniable example of Jesus' divine power as he restored the withered hand to normal. And they had previously witnessed Jesus casting out demons. So they, they unequivocally knew that God was doing amazing and divine things. But instead of falling to their knees and confessing him as Lord as they should have, they instead turned to him with anger. Uh, anger over the fact that he represented a threat to their authority. 
Now, I want to step back just for a moment and give you kind of this big picture view of where we are in Jesus' ministry. Now, I have started at the year 20 AD. This is kind of the middle most estimate. It could be a couple years earlier than this when Jesus' ministry started. It could be a little bit later. I have chosen a number that almost no one would be happy with if you were asking biblical scholars, but it's in the middle. So that's what I went with. The important thing here is that you can see that I've started with Jesus' public declaration of his ministry with his baptism, and it goes on, it's kind of hard to see because there's a fire alarm there, uh, with his ascension into heaven. This is the time frame we are looking at. And what we've been reading here in chapters 10, 11, and 12 is the Galilean ministry. And you can see that's right under the 30 AD, kind of the spring, summertime. There were actually three different tours of Galilee Jesus did around this time frame. And we are in the middle of this Galilean ministry. In chapter 11, we had the sending out of the disciples two by two. And in one more chapter, in chapter 14, we're going to find out that John the Baptist was beheaded. So we are right around that red dot, somewhere toward the end of Jesus' second year of ministry, going into his third. So for the next year and a quarter to a year and a half of Jesus' ministry, we are going to see an increasing amount of opposition to Jesus and his ministry from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. They are going to try to undermine him, get, get him with gotcha questions, uh, and when, when they can't prove that their traditions are greater than the Bible, they're just going to try and outright kill him. Uh, and they won't, of course, succeed until the time that God has appointed for them to succeed. So despite the fact that for the next year and a half, Jesus is under constant opposition from them, how does Jesus respond to them? What is the response of the Messiah to their constant uh, attacks on his authority and on his life? In verse 15, we read, Jesus aware of this. Jesus was aware of the fact that they immediately went out, met up with their most hated enemies, aside from him and plotted on how to destroy him, on how to kill him, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Jesus knew their hatred of him. Like, this was not something that caught him by surprise. And rather than confronting them as the creator of everything, the one through whom all things were made, as John 1-3 tells us, Jesus left. And what's amazing is that we're told that when Jesus left, People followed him. I read this, and it fills my mind with so many questions. Why did so many people follow him? I want to know. Why uh, is it that they were amazed at his teaching? Is it that they had witnessed him healing someone, and they had an affliction, and they wanted to be healed? Did they have a family member that was suffering under affliction for a long time? And they went out and they got him, and they wanted him to be healed. I, I had a real special thing. Um, my dad taught on this lesson. And he taught in the midst of his own struggle with cancer. And he just personally could imagine the pain and suffering these people who witnessed a, a hand being restored to normal. And then Jesus left. Was that their motivation just to be healed? Or were there some people who revered him as a king or revered him as a king? Do they love him as a long-awaited Messiah? What was the mindset of the people who followed? 
And we don't get to know the answers to these questions. The Bible doesn't tell us what their motivations were. We don't get to know if they genuinely desired to know him or if they just wanted relief from their afflictions. But we do get to know two things about them. The first is that whether they were aware of it or not, they left the Pharisees. They had to physically leave the Pharisees to follow Christ. Now, even if these people didn't care about spiritual matters, and they just wanted freedom from their infirmities, they still had to leave the Pharisees to go to where Christ was to be healed. And this serves as a powerful, visual example of what it should be in our Christian life, doesn't it? In James 4, 4, uh, we hear him say, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It is absolutely impossible to exist in a state where you agree with the world's teaching on everything and at the same time be a follower of Christ. We, we talked about this the last time I taught, right? About repentance and how the, the, what the word repentance meant was that you were going one way and you don't turn a little bit. You don't turn 90 degrees. You go the exact opposite way. Now you're going this way. That's what the mindset of repentance was. So if you're, if you're going and, and march, if you're marching lockstep with the world, you're going the wrong way and you've yet to turn around. Now, I, I don't want to discourage anyone here today. You hear this like, oh, hey, you know, there's a lot of things the world says that I haven't figured out where I where my my mind lies I haven't read the Bible enough to know where my stance is uh, maybe I'm in the wrong here I don't want to discourage you with with this mindset and you go well I'm I'm clearly not a Christian because there's so many things that I don't have right yet there's there's so many things that I recognize this in my life that I haven't turned away from therefore I'm I'm definitely not a Christian um, there's no such thing as a perfect Christian okay there's only the perfect Christ uh, if you're not in Christ, then obviously there is nothing you can do to, that is pleasing to him. Isaiah 64, 6 makes it undeniably clear that apart from Christ, all your best efforts are like filthy garments. Uh, so my point is not to burden you with an unattainable standard for, for perfection, okay? My point is like Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.10 to encourage you to excel still the more. I don't want you all to feel like, oh, because I'm not perfect, I'm just the worst person ever. But instead, to recognize that it's something you need to fix and then go out and work on fixing it. Because it's not going to be something you achieve overnight. It's certainly not going to be something, perfection itself is not going to be something you attain in this lifetime. But I encourage you to excel still the more. And let me ask you this, how can you know how to excel still more since we're talking about this? How can you, did I see a hand up? Nope, just fixing your hair, that's fine, mm -hmm. I gotcha. How, how do you know how to excel the more? Am I doing what the am I doing what I should be doing? Are there things I'm doing something that I'd categorize as following after the world's mentality, or is what I'm doing something that I can categorize as following after God's will? How can you know how to be excelling still the more? Reading the Bible. Reading the Bible. Real easy. This is I, I do do some trick questions. We've been over this, but I promise not every question I ask is a trick one. Some of them are, are exactly as obvious because they, it, it, that's right. Uh, it is to read the Bible and through prayer. Uh, James 4, 8 tells us that if we draw near to Christ or if we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. And I want you to understand 
The reason I mention all this is because every last person who left the Pharisees to follow Christ, in some respect, got to experience drawing near to God. They got to be healed, and they got to sit under his tutelage, under his teaching. Now, did all those people become Christians? No, no. Uh, unfortunately, though they did get to draw near to him, it was not drawing, a drawing near that led to salvation. Um, in John 6, we're going to read, or it's going to be a long time when we get to John. But in John 6, you can read, and you can see that uh, right after Jesus taught about how he was the bread of life, and that you had to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, obviously talking figuratively, uh, this was a hard thing for people to accept. And many, many people, many of whom claimed to be his disciples, abandoned him forever. So it wasn't a drawing near that led to salvation. Uh, but regardless, for a time, they got to draw near to God. So that's the first thing we know about these people. They had to leave the Pharisees to follow Jesus. The second thing we know about them, reading from verse 15, it says, he, that is Jesus, healed them all. Jesus healed them all. What an amazing phrase, and what a short phrase. It's four words long, and yet it holds so many events in it. I mean, in just a little bit, we're going to read about how Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then how Jesus reads, uh, feeds 4,000 more people. Jesus is routinely so surrounded by people that he has to go up on a mountain a little bit so he can see everyone or everyone can see him and he can be heard. Or he has to go out onto a boat a little ways so the crowd's not pressing him in so that he can actually speak to everyone. Jesus is so constantly surrounded by people that when a lame man needed to be healed, they had to cut away a roof because the, the house was too packed for his friends to get him in. And Jesus heals all of these people. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people saw Jesus and he healed them all. Uh, these four words, I think, are certainly alluded to at the end of John. John 21, 25, where we're told, now there are many other things Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would have been written. I think we take it for granted when we talk about miraculous healings uh, as Christians today. I mean, we read through the New Testament and we see so many examples. Well, he was healed and he was healed and he was healed. But when you look through the Bible, miraculous healings were actually extremely rare. In fact, I can literally count on a single hand the number of healings, miraculous healings that happened in the Old Testament. And I exclude from this list, by the way, things where someone was punished with affliction and then God removed that punishment. Um, that was still an absolute miraculous healing, but it was a result of uh, divine punishment first. So instances where someone had done nothing wrong that we're aware of, and God miraculously healed them, there are only five times. Uh, the first one being Elijah. He raised the widow's son, uh, or excuse me, Elisha. Then Elijah also healed, or raised the Sunamite woman's son from the dead. Uh, a man named Nahum was cleansed from his leprosy after he obeyed Elisha's instructions. Hezekiah was healed of a terminal illness, after praying, and once, and this is a crazy one. <laughs> this, is, this is something that we go, really? This is how he was healed? There was a dead man who was thrown into Elisha's tomb, and his body touched the bones of Elisha, and he stood up and walked out, having been raised from the dead. Uh, these are the only five healings that you have in the entire Old Testament uh, books. 
So here, we see that the amount of people Jesus healed was so massive. It should make our minds just boggle. And yes, it was so massive that had they all been recorded, there wouldn't be enough books to hold them all. Now, yes, that's probably some poetic license on John's part. Um, I I think we have, have proven that there are libraries that could more than easily hold a literal lifetime of recording Jesus' events. But, but, the point still stands. Although it is poetic, it stands that the amount of people Jesus saw and healed and taught and just interacted with was innumerable. And those who came to Christ under affliction, Christ healed them all. This, this was the response of the Messiah to the anger of the Pharisees. He withdrew from them and healed all who came to him. But why this response? Uh, why didn't Jesus rebuke them? I mean, he's the creator of the universe. Why didn't Jesus rebuke them? Why wasn't he turning over, over tables? Uh, why wasn't he chasing the Pharisees out of his temple? This was his rightful place of worship. And instead of kicking out those who are barring the gates of heaven from those who came to seek after the true God of the universe, Jesus got up and left. Well, verse 17 tells us why. It was because Christ's response was a fulfillment of what we were told was going to happen in Isaiah. And specifically, this is found in Isaiah uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. So I want you to go ahead and turn to Isaiah 42. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah 42. So Isaiah 42, starting verse 1. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established, excuse me, established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You might notice there's a couple word differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament there. Uh, It is not that Matthew was being lazy in how he wrote things down. Just keep in mind that when we translated the Old Testament, we did it from Hebrew. Uh, Typically in the New Testament, when you see someone quoting passage from the Old Testament. They're actually doing it from the Greek translation. So this is just a, a translation thing. We faithfully translate the Bible regardless of if we find it in Greek or in Hebrew, but as a result, there's a couple word order differences. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, but I just wanted to let you know if you ever go, hey, why why don't they translate it? It's not that they're not being faithful. It's just that there's some word changes. They're basically doing telephone with, uh, with their translations. That aside, this passage here in Isaiah 42 is the first of four passages that we call the servant songs. Uh, They're passages that call the reader in Isaiah's time to look ahead to the coming of the Messiah, or the way they put it, the the chosen servant of the Lord. Now, if you want to read through them all on your your own later on, uh, the passages that we're going to be looking at are Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 49, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. And perhaps the most well-known of all, Isaiah 53, just all of it. 
Uh, These are the four servant songs. And together, these passages describe the humility Christ had from birth, the power of his teachings, his complete obedience to the Father, and even his brutal death that he would willingly submit himself to so that we could have peace with God. But if you're to read Matthew 12 on your own, you might come to this quotation of Isaiah and you might go, well, why, why is it included here? Like, yes, we have Old Testament quotations, but what specifically caused God to say, Matthew, I want you to quote Isaiah 42 right here. I mean, before here, before now, we've seen Jesus heal people. We've seen Jesus interact with the Pharisees before. So what is it that caused this passage to be quoted right now? Why not sooner? Why not later? Or still, if you're still in Isaiah, I, I do think there's a hint. If you look back at Isaiah 41, just a couple of verses earlier in it, we're given a picture of God calling the kingdoms of the earth into his courtroom. And starting in verse 21, God actually calls the gods of the nations of the earth into his courtroom, all the false gods. And listen to how God speaks, the one true God speaks of the false gods there in verse 21. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them, uh, let them bring them, and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I love so much how God vividly derides the false gods men worship, telling the kings to bring them into court. These idols they worship are so powerless that that men have to carry them. Like, Like the idol isn't even powerful enough to get up and walk into the courtroom on its own. It has to be carried there. And yet for some reason, the kings are placing their hopes into these pieces of wood and metal that they have to carry around as if they're going to be able to do anything for them. God goes on to contrast these false gods against himself. And he says, y'all do anything, good, bad, anything. You can't do it. You're nothing. Let me tell you what I can do. I first said this. I first did this. And I think this is why God caused Matthew to quote Isaiah 42 at this point. He wanted the readers to be reminded why God had to raise up his chosen servant in the first place. Because that's what we get to. He says, you gods were nothing. I did everything first. There is no one here to carry my message. Behold, my chosen servant. He's going to be the one that carries my message. And by doing this, God is linking the Pharisees and along with them, the other so-called religious leaders of the day who had turned aside from God and were worshiping man-made traditions. He's linking them to the pagan nations that were being denounced in Isaiah 41. And in response, or or in turn, he's lifting up his servant as a standard of righteousness. So let's turn, and we're going to look at the declaration of God the Father. You want to know who the Messiah is. This is who God the Father says he is. 
I'm going to be reading again from Matthew 12, so jump back over there if you're there. But I'm going to be providing references, and I, I just don't want you confused. Like I'm, You can read it from either place. But I'm going to say, oh, in verse 18, and I don't want you to be in Isaiah 42 going, verse 18, this has nothing that I would talk about. So I'm in Matthew 12. So first and foremost, who is the Messiah according to the Father? He is the servant of God. Verse 18, it says, behold my servant. Now, you know, throughout history, power and authority have always kind of gone hand in hand, haven't they? I mean, you think about the Steve Jobs of the world. You think about the Jeff Bezoses. I mean, they're obscenely rich, obscenely powerful. They are infamous for their horrible working conditions, working for these people. I mean, authority, power, and abuse. It, it just tends to go hand in hand. And contrast that to the Messiah. The Messiah, the chosen servant of God, is identified first and foremost as God's servant. When I read about this, how, and I, I think about how Christ is fully God, and yet he presents himself as a servant, a passage comes to my mind. Can you guess what that passage is? Think about how God is, or Christ presents himself as the servant and is at the same time fully God. Can you think what it is? I don't remember. I think of the verse. It's like, even though he was fully God, he did not take that as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Very good, yes. Uh, that's Philippians 2, verses uh, 4 through 8. It says, Have this mindset among you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, which I'm quoting from ESV, uh, Fox, I think you might have been doing NSV, uh, but both good versions. Uh, he exists in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It goes on to say that he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Messiah was God's servant. And notice how God doesn't name his servant. Like Usually when you read through the Old Testament, and God speaking, he says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Abraham? Have you considered my servant Jacob? Usually, God specifies by name the servant that he's talking about. But not here in, Isaiah, or not here in Matthew 12 or Isaiah 42. He just says, behold, my servant. And the implication here is that the servant is of the premost position. He doesn't need to be identified. He is the number one servant of the Lord. And just by saying my servant without any sort of identification, everyone's going to know that this is the foremost one. This is the Messiah. Second, the Messiah would be the one chosen by God. Uh, verse 18 again, it says, whom I have chosen. You know, God did not have to wait in heaven, wringing his hands, hoping that someday... Or maybe someday some man will be good enough to be my Messiah. No. No, God hand-selected and planned out exactly who the Messiah would be before the earth was ever created. God knew. Third, we see that the Messiah is beloved by God and is in turn pleasing to God. Uh, we see this, again, verse 18, but we also see this throughout scriptures as well. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 6 refers to the Son as the Beloved. Colossians 1.13, likewise, 
says that the Lord has transferred Christians from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And John 3.35 says that the father loves the son. And John 10.17 says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The Messiah is beloved by God and is pleasing to God. Fourth, the Messiah is God's emissary. That is, he's his official representative. Now, have you ever wondered why the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus? Right? I, I go way ahead. Oh, I'm over here clicking away. I got out. Thank you. I got louder. Have you ever wondered why the Holy Spirit had to send on Jesus at his baptism? Like, was there any piece of Jesus that was lacking at that point that needed the Holy Spirit? No, of course there wasn't. Jesus wasn't just some guy up to that point who had a miraculous birth and had just happened to not sin. And at that point, God says, okay, you've proven yourself. Now I'm going to make you my son. Now you have your article of divinity upon you. No, 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 no. This is not what happened at all. There is no aspect of divinity that Christ lacked until that point. Instead, this was a sign from God that the Messiah was his chosen representative. Uh, we see this throughout scripture as well, that God gives his Holy Spirit as a public de declaration as to who his servant is or who his representative of the time was. Uh, we see this obviously in the day of Pentecost. It's going to come up here in Acts. When the disciples are gathered together and the Holy Spirit descends on them and is seen as flaming tongues of fire. Uh, and we also see this in November, or November, excuse me, <laughs> in Numbers 11, where God takes some of the spirit that was on Moses and he gives it to the 70 elders. And this is a, a powerful visual way of everyone in Israel seeing that these were the Lord's chosen. In fact, we're told that they immediately prophesied, but they never did it again. And this was just a way that God let everyone see that these were, in fact, his chosen. Now, just for the record, uh, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is somehow finite. You know, we, we see how God says that he took a portion of his, the spirit that he gave to Moses and he divided it up among the elders. That's not trying to imply that this Holy Spirit is finite and you can only have so much of it in any one given spot. Uh, instead, the, the point is that we're supposed to see that the spirit that God had lavished on Moses he was giving the same spirit, just to a lesser degree. And we see this obviously throughout the New Testament as well. Everyone's given different gifts. We all don't have the same amount. Uh, but it's not supposed to imply by any stretch of the imagination that the Holy Spirit is somehow limited in power or in, in abilities. In the same way, God is publicly declaring Christ as his official representative, his, his emissary by allowing the crowd to visibly witness the heavens part, the Holy Spirit descend like a dove, and hear his voice booming through the heavens, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now remember I said that these verses were kind of like a short, or did I say that? I, I may have skipped over that. But these verses were kind of like a short impromptu sermon. Uh, that God takes verses 14 through 16, and then we come down to this section of 18 through 21, and God is expositing what just happened. Well, so far, we've done the introduction. God has just introduced to you, this is my servant 
And now we're actually going to the part where he, he goes through what we just see, saw happen to Jesus. And he's going to explain exactly uh, what he wants us to know from these interactions. This is the main part of God's sermon in verses 18 to 21. Uh, the fifth thing here, the fifth thing, is that the Messiah is going to be the one who proclaims justice. Uh, and when we look back up in Matthew 12, we can see that this is precisely what Christ is doing as he confronted the Pharisees. In fact, Matthew 23 might be one of the best examples of how the Messiah would proclaim justice. In verses 2 through 5, we read, The scribes and the Pharisees uh, sit on Moses' seat. And so, uh, excuse me, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works we do. This is Jesus. He's pronouncing judgment on the, the Pharisees. He says, do observe whatever they tell you to, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. The religious leaders of the time, and honestly throughout all time, have loved to create meaningless laws and place them on the people. Things like, for Taylor, it was considered to be unlawful for him to carry a needle because he might have been tempted, or a needle on the Sabbath specifically, because he might have been tempted to do work. Of course, a baker could carry a needle. Anyone but a tailor could carry the needle. So the, the Pharisees, they absolutely could carry a needle. They would never be making a law that would keep them from doing anything. They could also take their livestock out to drink or eat. As we see in Matthew 12, they condemn Jesus for healing a person. Christ firmly proclaimed justice against these men that made laws that were contrary to God's law. And the people marveled, didn't they? The Bible tells us that they marveled because he spoke as one who had authority and not just as the Pharisees did. Verse 19 is going to tell us our sixth declaration the Father makes about the Messiah is that he would not quarrel or cry aloud. When the Pharisees were angered that their hypocrisy had been called out, they had been openly identified as hypocrites. They went out and planned to murder him. That was their response. But Christ's response to their response was to simply get up and leave. In Luke 4, when Christ is rejected at Nazareth and the people attempt to throw him off a cliff for what he said, he simply passes through their midst and goes on his way. God does not require our obedience to be complete. Let's keep this in mind. God's not coming to us like a beggar, his head bowed, his hat in his hand, stuffing the ground with his shoe, hoping that we might come to him and worship him. We are the ones in desperate need of what the Messiah is offering. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, and God is the one giving us the opportunity to respond to his gospel. We are the ones who need to be crying aloud in the street the same way that the two blind beggars did in Matthew 20 who are crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So when Christ is rejected, the Messiah simply leaves. The same thing we're told about the Messiah here is that he would not break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick. Now, I think most of us can grasp the mental image of a smoldering wick, right? You've all had candles, it gets down to the bottom, 
you got you know you have that giant tower of wax but the center has been burned away from using the candle and it's just sitting there and it's flickering it starts to smolder a little bit you get a little smoke coming up we can all kind of get that now in jesus time obviously they didn't have candles like that or most people wouldn't use a candle like that uh they would have used let's see nope didn't include it no one's perfect <laughs> they used a clay lamp so you would have had you've seen aladdin right Get rid of the metal lamp, it's clay now. Get rid of the top, it's open. So you got the one end, and you would have had a little piece of cloth in it, and it would have dripped down into your oil reservoir, and it would have had an open top that you could have poured oil in there so that your candle would continually going. Well, over time, the oil gets worn away, and the fire starts to consume the actual wick itself, because the fire, for the most time, is going to be consuming the oil that gets wicked up the wick. Yeah, that sense works. But over time, the oil goes away, the wick gets burned down. And all that you're left with is a tiny bit of cloth that's about to be consumed. It's down to just a stub. It's no longer good for anything at all. Most people throw it away, and they simply get a new piece of cloth and put it in there. And you're good to go again. But not the Messiah. The Bible tells us the Messiah wouldn't get rid of that smoldering wick. Likewise with the bruised reed. Uh, there are several things this could be talking about. I think the one that makes the most sense that they would have been talking about is at that time, people would take a reed, and it was kind of like a bamboo segment, where, have you ever seen bamboo? Have you ever cut one open? Maybe some guys have, I don't know. Yeah, so a bamboo, it has an open area in this inside, and it has little segments every once in a while. So you'll have a top and a bottom piece and this hollow tube between it. And then you'll have segments like that all the way down. Well, reeds were the same way. So the shepherds of the day, they'd take this reed and they'd cut it off at one section so that you now have a solid top on this end and just a hole on the bottom at the other end. And they would turn this into a very basic reed flute, kind of like a recorder. But whenever that reed would crack, which was easy to do, it would no longer be good for anything. You'd now have it vibrating in the wrong spot. It would no longer be pleasant to the ears. You'd throw it in the fire pile. you just throw it on the ground. It's garbage. You got it. I mean, they're a dime a dozen. You don't even have to buy them. You just go out, here's a, a little stream, you're feeding your, your sheep, or you're watering your sheep, and you grab this reed that's lying there. It's absolutely worthless. But the Bible tells us that the Messiah wouldn't even throw away this worthless, bruised reed. Instead, he would look at these base and useless things, and rather than finishing them off, he would restore them. Because Jesus healed them all. The eighth thing we're told is that the Messiah would bring justice to victory. Now, this could be referring to Christ's death on the cross, right? But I think what we're seeing here is actually the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of God, talking about what is still yet to come, even from our perspective. Uh, this is how God told everyone to identify prophets back in Deuteronomy, as he gave the Levitical, Levitical law. Uh, he says, how, if the prophet comes, gives you a word, they says from the Lord, how are you supposed to check it? Well, they're, they're supposed to give you something that's going to happen soon and something that's going to happen a long time. So if the soon thing doesn't come to pass, they're not a prophet from the Lord. They're lying. Uh, go out and stone them. But if the thing does come to pass, they are from the Lord. You can trust their word. And so what we see here in the first part, the first three verses, 
is the immediate things that are going to happen that Christ fulfilled. We saw that he wouldn't quarrel. We saw that he wouldn't break a bruised reed or get rid of a smoldering wick. And now we're looking to what's going to happen in the future, that one day Christ will come and bring justice to victory. One day, all things will exist in submission to him. And one day, Satan and his followers will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, obviously, contrast that to today. I mean, is, is that where we're at? Has, does anyone really feel like justice brought to victory? Well, no, it, absolutely not. Uh, instead, I'd say that we're living in Ephesians 2, 2 now, where sinful man are following after the prince of power of the air, after Satan. We see corruption. Uh, we see bribes. Uh, we, we see justice denied. Uh, that's, that's where we live right now. So we, I, I think it is safe to say that when we talk about the Messiah bringing victory to justice, that is something that we get to look forward to in the future still. So our ninth, our final declaration, our ninth and final declaration that the Father makes about the Messiah is that the Gentiles will hope in him. Now, when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not how we think about the word hope. We talk about, oh, I, I hope that I get an A on the test that I didn't study for. I mean, the, the Bible says, don't be concerned about what you're going to say when you're four kings or taking tests. I think, I think that part's in the, there somewhere. Maybe it's a footnote. Uh, but that's how we use the word hope. It's, it's a thing that we have really no basis for hoping in. Uh, like, there, there is no reason you should be hoping you ace the test, but you're over here like, oh, just let me pass it. I hope I do. I hope I do. Well, you have no reason to believe it. You didn't study for it. I don't know. Maybe you're a better student than I am. Maybe you did. Uh, but that's how we use hope today. When the Bible uses the word hope, it is instead talking about the, the, base, the most basic uh, assurance we have in something. Like, I hope... The sun's going to rise in the morning. Well, I have absolute assurance the sun is going to rise. So a lot of times when I go, well, what's the point in hoping what we know we're going, is going to happen? But that's how the Bible uses it. It's the fundamental assurance we have in something we know is going to happen. Likewise, the Gentiles or the nations of the earth absolutely will trust in the sure assurance that the Messiah will one day reign in victory uh, or reign and bring victory to justice. So isn't this an amazing portrait that the Father has declared the Messiah? Such simple things. I mean, as I read through it, all, all I literally did was I, I wrote down, what do these four verses say about, about Jesus? And yet they're wonderful, wonderful truths that we can have full hope and assurance in and I, I want to encourage you, actually, to go through all four of those Savior songs that are in Isaiah. Remember, that's Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. Go through all four of these and just write down what it says about the Savior. It's not going to be something you need to be a theologian to understand. Just write it down. And then read through the Gospels and marvel at how Christ fulfills what the Bible said he would, what Isaiah proclaimed him uh, to be. In fact, that's going to be my first application for y'all. Let the small glimpse of who the Father says the Messiah is drive you to learn more about Christ. 
You know, it's easy for us to become what I call New Testament Christians. We spend all our time in the New Testament. We read about the amazing truths, absolutely amazing truths that God has revealed about himself in the New Testament. But we never really read the Old Testament. Uh, it's not that we avoid it actively. It's just we never get around to it. You know, you, you kind of try and start a reading plan. You read Genesis several times, and then you write back in the New Testament somehow. Uh, let me encourage you to not just be New Testament-only Christians. God has told us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the entirety of Scripture, even the genealogies, which are nothing but a chapter of the Son of the Son of the Son of, are profitable. They are good for making you a complete. Second, let me encourage you to not be like the Pharisees. Do not be angry at Christ, that he has authority over your life, but instead rejoice in who the Messiah is. Let's go and pray. Father, we thank you for this time in the word. We thank you that you entrusted faithful men to write your scriptures so that we could learn about you. We rejoice that we serve an almighty God who planned out the entirety of our history, who saw us in our distress, and instead of abandoning us to the futility of our lives, you sent your emissary to us, Christ Jesus the Messiah, to proclaim justice and take care of those suffering. We pray that we would be emboldened this week to likewise be your representatives to the lost and dying world, knowing that one day they will have to face your judgment as you bring justice to victory. We pray this in Christ's holy name, the only name given to us under heaven by which we can be saved. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. Like, subscribe.